So May, let's say you're going on an ocean expedition. What do you need to bring with you? Well, I'd need a boat, a crew, probably some scuba gear, a camera, snacks, and uh, of course, dynamite. Uh, what? Hello and welcome to Science Brunch. I'm May Prince and I'm here with Katie McKissick, aka Beatrice the Biologist. Howdy! And we also have a random baby. Yeah, so you might occasionally hear some uh, some squeaks. Grunting. You know, just yells. normal noises. Yeah, totally normal. But um, but yeah, there there's a baby in the room. Yes, in Watch the out. in the studio. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Our very fancy studio. Yes, yes, it's the studio baby. Exactly. It it, it lives here. She was here when we got here. I don't uh, know. We don't know what's going on. Um. So anyway, today we'll be talking about. I will be talking about Jacques Yves Cousteau. Jacques. But are you going to speak some French today? You guys I, may speak French. I I might throw in some words every now and again. We. Oui. Uh, <laughs> oui. See that has two the, meanings. The multi-purpose, yes, the double entendre, if you will. Oh my goodness, you're already whipping it out. <laughs> already starting. Uh, but before we get to that, what is our science starter today? So our science appetizer is about giraffes. Awesome. I've been thinking about giraffes lately. I mean, I usually think about giraffes, so is that normal? <laughs> I love giraffes. They look so cool. <laughs> so people, meaning uh-huh. scientists, recently oh. d- realized, discovered, realized uh-huh. that the species of giraffe we think about, the, you know, the animal that's in Africa, the tall one, is not just one species, but four. Four? Four species of giraffe. And we didn't realize that. We thought that they were all one species. Really? There's four of them that are distinct genetically. They don't interbreed, which is the the definition of a species, by the way. Uh Uh-huh. Because it can be kind of tricky. So for a species to be a species or for it to be considered separate species, it has to be genetically distinct in a way that they cannot interbreed with each other got it so if you if two animals can have a viable offspring meaning that that offspring can also have have babies that is uh, you know those are members of the same species Hmm. so for for speciation when things actually do split off sometimes happens because of course you're not going to interbreed if you don't live in the same area so that's a distinct species and and of course if there's a genetic reason that you can't have viable offspring so there are those kind of in-between examples, like lions and tigers. Can, right. In, in a, cer- in a certain... Ligers. Yes. They, some, so a liger can be, uh, can actually have, have babies mm-hmm. um, if it's a certain combination. So there, so, then, so if you have a liger that's crossed with another lion, it's a lie liger. If it's a, you know, and then a tiger, whatever. And there's tiglions because they named them based based on which one was the male and which was the female. It gets complicated. But then there's always that example also of horses and uh, donkeys having a mule, but mules are sterile. So again, that upholds it. But anyway, so that is a definition of species. Got it. You know, you have to have viable offspring. Anyway, so yeah, there are four species of giraffe, Hmm. which is cool because it's like, oh, hey, we hadn't really been looking that closely. There's there's more than one species or one kind. They're they're distinct. Yeah. But it's not so great news conservation wise because now, you know, having them be distinct and having not so great numbers on them, like they're a little more endangered than we thought. Right. So that's that's that gets tricky. Gotcha. But um, but I just love these examples of there's always more to learn. So then dogs and wolves, can they interbreed? As far as I know. Okay. Because um, all dogs are 
uh, a, a single species, but then there's different breeds, and all those breeds can kind of intermingle. Right. Um, I I guess a wolf, and like because there are those stories about huskies and, and wolves, like right. crosses. Um, and I I would assume that there that those um babies can have babies too, hmm. but I'm not positive. I mean, in that case, it would just be sort of like a a physical boundary it's like well they don't hang out with each other so (laughs) i mean normally well and there's also those cases of grizzly bears and polar bears reproducing because as the ice melts Mm -hmm. you know grizzly bears can head further north right and they're they're like territories are overlapping yeah Yeah. they're hanging out and making babies yeah i know that one of the last times that someone found one they immediately shot it (laughs) and we're like oh great (laughs) well done Um, this is teddy roosevelt (laughs) (sighs) like oh my gosh this is the only one of its kind i better kill it guys just to be safe can you not yeah i don't understand this yes well conservation you know it's thin line as we will learn (sighs) yeah today um Mm. this yes i know so segue it's a segue uh so yeah today i'm talking about jacques yves Cousteau, which was he was a frenchman wait what's his middle name it's like one of those hyphenated first names, oh. Jacques-Yves. Oh, okay, gotcha. But we pretty much know him as Jacques Cousteau because yeah. Americans don't understand hyphenated first names. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we have Anne-Marie. So it's, it's... Right, right. So, so... Carol Ann! <laughs> that, that's from Poltergeist. <laughs> Uh-huh. There was no accent in Poltergeist. Yeah, I'm think, sorry. I think we tend to mash the names together instead of including a hyphen. So oh, okay. maybe that's why we're confused by it. But gotcha. anyway, that aside, Jacques. Um, he sounds familiar, right? Oh, God, Do you know who yeah. he is? Okay. So our generation, I think, grew up with him a lot just because that's when his television show was on. And it was on in the United States. I don't think I ever actually saw it. I was just aware of it existing. It's one of those things that was just in the background, but I don't... I can't visualize ever having watched it. Yeah. So he was, I mean, it was, he was on television, National Geographic funded a lot of his stuff. So, so you he know. was like the Steve Irwin yes. of the uh, 70s? 80s? Yeah. And even before that, okay. starting in the 50s. Oh, so okay. So yeah, there you go. I didn't know this goes when he started. Way back. And I think in the United States, he was known as Captain Cousteau. And in France, he was Le Commandant Cousteau. Ooh. Yeah. So we'll jump right into it. So he was born June 11th, 1910 Mm. in France, and his father was an international lawyer. His mother was the daughter of a wealthy local wine merchant, and he grew up, he learned how to swim at age four, you know. That sounds early. Is that early? When do you learn to swim? Hmm. I mean, I think it's around that age where you start getting accustomed to the the water and everything. Um, and he always had kind of a strong curiosity for mechanical objects, specifically like cameras. And so he was, you know, always taking them apart kind of thing that Grace Hopper did was like, oh, how does this thing work? And <laughs> totally. like wrecking it to figure out how it worked I inside. I must destroy it to understand it. Exactly. And uh, he ended up entering the French Naval Academy at age 20 in 1930. And he graduated and became a gunnery officer. And this was, you know, before World War II. And he was actually training to become a pilot, but in 1933, he was in a very serious car accident, I think, which almost killed him. Oh, my. And as a result, he wasn't able to continue his pilot training. And um, part of his physical rehabilitation was actually swimming. So he spent more and more and more time in the water, like, screwing around. And one of his friends gave him a pair of goggles during this time. 
because before you know he's just like swimming in the ocean hanging out and he gave him some goggles and then he all of a sudden could see everything underneath the surface and i was like wow look at all this look stuff, at all this stuff. <laughs> cool. so cool so that kind of was how his interest started culminating into what he would do in the future so he married uh, a woman named simone he was in his mid-20s she was 18 and they ended up having two sons so he had a, a son named jean-michel and a son named philippe and thank you for doing the accent I you're love welcome it. john michael <laughs> and philip <laughs> For and, those of you who are not French. And uh, apparently, <laughs> Simone was not to be messed with. Both sons were born on the family's kitchen table. <laughs> so, nice. You know, just keeping it in house. And they eventually joined him. Actually, his entire family joined him on his future expeditions. So his sons grew up, basically, on the sea with him. Nice. And his, their mother, Simone, was always along with, for so the ride as well. So they had an aquatic life, you could they say. They did. A lot of this is going to start sounding familiar if you've seen Wes Anderson's The Life Aquatic. <laughs> I actually um, I haven't rewatched it very recently, but watching a lot of the videos from Cousteau's expeditions, I was like, man, Wes Anderson really nailed this. <laughs> <laughs> like, there are so many similarities, both in storyline and the look. It's kind of hilarious. So if you watch, you know, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Then you're an expert already. <laughs> you're an expert, but go and watch the videos that Cousteau has online because you'll get a huge kick out of it. So then, as in many of our stories, World War II comes along. Oh, that war. I know. And um, Cousteau's family actually has to flee because, you know, Paris gets taken over by the Nazis. So they end up moving to a small town near the Swiss border. And they're just hanging out. And uh, he joins the French resistance. And starts spying on, you know, troop movements and stuff in Italy and reporting back. And he actually received uh, the Legion of Honor from France later for his espionage work. Nice. Yeah. And it's interesting. His son eventually also received the same award just this year, May 2016. What? Yeah. I mean, not for espionage. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. But still, that's wild, though. Yeah. So they're a very uh, distinguished family in, in France. Um, so while he was hanging out and waiting for World War II to be over when he wasn't (laughs) spying on the Nazis, uh, he was hanging out with his friend and trying to figure out how to build a, an underwater breathing device. So his wife actually introduced him to this engineer named Emile Gagnon and they played around with a bunch of tubes and like this regulator that was developed for automobiles to try to like, because they'd already had a system that pushed air into you know a device but it wasn't regulated so it just like it ran out of air pretty quickly and not just when you needed to breathe because you know you're taking breaths you don't just go (gasps) and then like never stop inhaling (laughs) so you're not wasting a whole lot of the air so they figured out how to adapt kind of the system from automobiles which regulates the amount of fuel like only when you hit the accelerator whatever when you need it to an air system and that's how they came up with the self-contained underwater breathing apparatus, which we know as scuba, scuba or the aqualung. And they were the ones who invented it. Like, I bef- didn't know that he invented it. Yeah. Before that, did not have scuba. Wow. Yeah. Before that, it was just free diving. It was just free diving. And, you know, they had like Snuggles. those those diving bell types of things. Right. But again, Oof. they would run out of air pretty quickly because they just weren't able to 
you know, regulate the flow. Well, I've also heard if you mess up the pressure, you could get sucked up into the tube and it would like squeeze Ooh. your head really bad and you would mm. die. Well, you die. Yeah. So they developed a safer method. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, they worked on that. And also during that time, you know, since he was interested in like mechanical type stuff and cameras, he started developing cameras that could go underwater and like take the pressure of going deeper underwater. And so this is all kind of leading up to him being able to do documentaries. I never thought about him as an engineering type guy. Yeah, he was a huge engineer. And like yeah. he, he had, I think, a lot of ideas. And he also relied on engineers that he knew to kind of help him build them out teamwork teamwork exactly that's really cool but yeah so he always collaborated very closely with um with engineers and scientists and stuff like that so it was during this time that he made two documentaries on underwater exploration using his you know new camera and it was called 18 meters deep and shipwrecks wait what are meters again i'm just kidding (laughs) shipwrecks yeah so 18 meters not bad yeah like that's that's pretty far down there yeah it is um so after the war he worked for the French Navy to clear underwater mines using the scuba gear because, you know, he could get down there and stay down there for a while and, you know, navigate much more easily than just like free diving and much deeper. So he was clearing out mines. And in the meantime, he continued like doing his own underwater explorations and like, you know, screwing around with camera equipment, all that stuff. And he actually he had a team and there was a naval officer and another diver and they were called the Mousquemer which was a play on words for the mousquetaire, which is the, the three musketeers. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, so uh, they were apparently always hanging out and like doing diving experiments and trying to develop um, equipment for the sea and like the lab and so how they, they would they, do it. The sea three musketeers. The sea three musketeers. The under, underwater Yeah, so it, sounds, it sounds better in French. <laughs> but that's the Most general idea. Most things do, this actually. Is <laughs> this is true. And so, yeah, he started teaming up with expert divers and, um, you know, like academic scientists in the late 40s. And he went on an underwater expedition in the Mediterranean and they were exploring a Roman shipwreck. So he started like looking at not just natural types of things, but shipwrecks and, you know, kind of archaeological finds underwater. And this was kind of the first time that this was this was kind of being mainstream uh, science. And I think they couldn't do it during the war because of all the, the warring and the mines. So it made it possible. So yeah, in, underwater mines sound really scary. Yeah. Yeah, they were pretty the, scary. You know, there's, there's currents and the water's... I mean, like, I'm, when you're a little bit lower, it's not like you're being pushed around too much. But I just... Ah, like yeah. if you accidentally hit it, they're just... Or, oh, God, it and sounds so terrifying. By the way, they still find World War II bombs and landmines in France to this day. Like, there is a team of ordnance disposal guys that travel around just in a loop and they say you know if there's a farmer like plowing a field and they're like oh here's a bomb like all right put a flag on it we'll be there in two weeks and they go around wow and like a special it. trash pickup <laughs> exactly exactly so it's just like part of life at this point Man. um but in 1950 so he's 40 years old he <laughs> decides to buy an old british mine sweeping ship that had been converted into a ferry and was running in italy and he bought that ship, the Calypso, and he modified it with all this oceanographic instruments for diving and scientific research because his plan was to start going on, you know, bigger expeditions on his own. So to fund this whole boat buying thing, his wife actually sold her family jewels and fur coats to purchase fuel, 
and the compass and like other equipment. And um, she apparently was like a very uh, distinct presence on the ship and was kind of the uh, ship's informal captain. And nice. uh, she took care of the crew. She was the only woman on this crew and was known as the shepherdess, La Bergère, because she took care of everyone. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so in 1951, Cousteau took scientific leave from the Navy. I think, you know, he's still in the Navy. And um, they took the, the Calypso's first trip to the coast of Corsica, which is an island off the southern coast of France, like kind of between France and Italy. And it was kind of a test run. So the whole Cousteau family went... His sons were 12 and 10 years old, and they served as cabin boys. And it just was kind of like a, a test run for uh, like a, another trip several months later. It was the first real mission, and they headed to the Red Sea to study corals. So they went there. They took a lot of, uh, they took a lot of samples, like photographic documentation, and a lot of it was stuff that no one had ever seen before. And Cousteau's motto was, we must go see for ourselves. So that was he always his attitude, like, oh, we'll just take the boat and go down there and go under the Let's water go, and kids. take some pictures. Yeah. So, <laughs> so he he ended up teaming up uh, right after that with a diver who ended up being his master diver for the rest of his time uh, doing expeditions. The guy's name was Albert Falco, and at that point he was 25 years old, so younger than Cousteau. Um, but they joined forces. And he was by his side for almost 40 years of underwater exploration. And he was kind of, he became more of the ship's master, like the crew's master, and kind of the technical expert on how to do things. And what he said was, you know, Cousteau needed him because he grew up on the beach, in, I think near Marseille, and he knew stuff kind of more instinctively than Cousteau did. And so Cousteau had to rely on him in a lot of situations to make sure that they were safe and, you know, they got the expeditions done. So after all of this, you know, Cousteau's been struggling to finance all of this on his own, you know, his own selling the family heirlooms yeah. to, to get things done. And so he's like, oh, what should I do to finance this? I'll start doing science communication, Woo! which we all know is a huge so money-making business. <laughs> um, but he writes a book called The Silent World, and it was later adapted into an award-winning film. That was his first film. Uh, first widely known film and it actually won the Palme d'Or in 1956 in Cannes so it, it wasn't bad Damn. he didn't do very bad and it's kind of started his whole signature look with a red cap and the blue <laughs> shirt and you know they're like silver diving suits and all the bright yellow diving equipment um, which you will see if you watch Steve Sees Who um, <laughs> but <laughs> if you watch that original documentary you will be probably horrified by what is included in it because let's just say, you know, the standards of the day are not what they are now. So this was not so long ago, about 60 years ago. And in the film, you know, his crew is out there, they're sailing around and they're diving and they're holding on to sea turtles and like oh. the sea turtles are trying to get to the surface in order to breathe and like they actually show a clip where the sea turtle gets up and is finally like you know the guy's like holding on to it so it's he's dragging the sea turtle's dragging him up to the surface and it gets up to the surface and is like <gasps> like it can barely breathe oh and then gosh. they go to an island with giant tortoises and they're all like riding the giant tortoises <laughs> around and they're like oh i can't move oh my god and then 
they set dynamite in a coral reef and blow it up so that it kills just hundreds, if not thousands of fish. They're just floating on the surface of the water. And it's so they can collect samples like of what living things are in that area. It seems all very kind of uh, cowboy science, you know? Well, earlier I said, I must destroy it, so I understand it. I was joking. I wasn't actually suggesting that he do that. That was his second most well-known motto. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But they also, you know, with the boat, at one point they, like, run over a baby sperm whale and it gets lacerated by the, the propellers and it's just uh, bleeding. Uh, and so they're like... Well, we will put it out of its misery. And so they shoot it with a rifle. And then, of course, all these sharks come up to eat the whale, as, you know, sharks do. And then they start killing the sharks. And it's just like... Oh, my God. <laughs> there was this this guy, he gave a critique in French, but it was absolutely hilarious. Like, it's just like, we revered this film and this man. And it turns out he's just out there, like, taking fish off and, like bothering ocean creatures and blowing up coral reefs like <laughs> so you know the the uh the man that Jacques Cousteau became the conservationist that he became the environmentalist was not who he started out as he started out as kind of a guy blowing stuff up in the ocean yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which hmm. is also in the life aquatic well i'm glad we don't do this stuff anymore i mean what it reminds me of is um like the closest thing current day is when people try to take these photos where they're really really close to say a whale shark or they want to take a picture where they're holding on to a fin of yeah maybe a whale shark or 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 a different shark or a dolphin or something like oh i want to be close as possible and then whenever one of those photos goes viral all the the people i know like scientists on twitter that are you know study study sharks or whales are like please don't do this yeah please do not recreate this photo you're really bothering these animals you're stressing them out just don't do it there's no no good comes of this yeah and it was (laughs) i mean he eventually he eventually came to that same conclusion like i need to be a better person and steward of did he just realize this or was it part did he actually say this and it was there like so he did so he like publicly say oh okay everybody so it was in the mid 60s when he got he got a a first his first hour-long television special called the world of jacques cousteau and that ran on abc um and it was while he was kind of doing that series that he realized oh you know maybe i shouldn't be blowing up fish and stuff like we need to conserve the oceans because what he was witnessing through all of his years of diving i mean he he'd been diving since the 40s just over those 20 years was the change from pollution and you know environmental effects that were having huge impacts on like ocean life and coral reefs and all of that so when he started noticing that he realized I really need to change my direction and start making it my cause to conserve the ocean. Um, so he he himself like admitted that he didn't always start out this way. And in fact, um, it said that when the Cousteau Society, which he later founded, they were remastering The Silent World, this first film. And they said um, they were rewatching and they were like, oh my God, this is terrible we have to cut these scenes it's like out you, it's like when you watch a, a, a movie you haven't seen since your childhood yeah. and you have these really great memories of it hold up yeah. at all. exactly <laughs> and they they said that oh well we should cut out 
these ugly scenes because you know they like in the modern world people will watch them and be horrified and and Cousteau said no like we have to leave them in because it will show how far we've come and how dreadful humans can be if we don't make a conscious effort to be better so he recognized that that was That's a fault. Cool of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, he did, and, he did, and that he didn't want to cover it up and be like, "Oh, I never exactly. did that." Just like, let's just never speak of this again. Like, exactly. Yeah, like, no, no, air my mistakes so no one else makes them. Like, I'm. So now that. it's on the internet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it it really did. I mean, with the ocean even more than on land, it really took us a long time. And people, there are people that still don't believe it, and cultures that still don't believe that the ocean is a finite resource. Yeah. Like this this idea that the ocean is so big, mm-hmm. just like the planet is so big. Like oh, like like climate change can't possibly happen. The world, the, the planet's so big, like we can't affect it. Same thing with the ocean. People are just like, no, there's always gonna be more fish. There's always gonna be more of this or that, and we yeah. can't possibly affect such a giant system. It's like, no, actually we can. And really, what's interesting is that it's only been for the past fifty or so years that we've had kind of a an eye toward under the ocean. Because before that, you know, we didn't have scuba, we didn't have uh, research submarines. Mm -hmm. And so Cousteau really kind of started this whole uh, public awareness of what is under the water. And kind of people started learning, you know, through National Geographic issues and his programs, like what it looked like. Because before then, like, yeah, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, there's just tons of fish in there. It's fine. Like, everything's going to heal itself, whatever. And it's, I mean, even now we're still learning stuff about coral reefs that are being bleached and dying. And so, I mean, our knowledge range is only about 50 years old. Yeah. Yeah, And before then, I mean, you'd have to actually be on a boat below deck be like below water that had a, a window yeah like, i remember darwin like looking at the window of the boat and be like look at all that stuff yeah That's, and so there where no one can see it why is it there <laughs> so yeah so on the calypso one of the innovations that he did was this false nose and it was an underwater observation chamber and it had eight portholes and you could like lie down in it and look around and that is also in Wes so Anderson's cool. movie. Yeah. Like, it seems so fantastical and just like what you would write if you were just writing fiction. And Cousteau thought it up and was like, oh, yeah, let's weld it onto the front of the boat. Like, so cool. It was crazy. And the other, he invented, he helped invent um, a lot of things. One of them was the first underwater vehicle designed expressly for scientific re- research. So it was called the, the Denise. And it was, this was like the late 50s. And it's just, they said it looked like a, a, a sci-fi flying saucer. So they called it the diving saucer. Mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, a couple meters around and it held two crew. It was a steel cabin and they could go as far as 350 meters down for four or five hours. Ooh, nice. So that was a huge advancement because yeah. you didn't have to come up right away. You could take your time, like go deeper. You know, it takes time for your body to adjust to all the different levels. And so the longer that you could stand underwater, the deeper that you could go theoretically at least. And they also eventually developed two smaller vehicles that were, they had like little arms that could grab each other, like <laughs> things and each other. Like if they were in distress, they could lift each other out of the water. And it had like plexiglass windows where the two, it was just a one person chamber, but they could look at each other and see each other and like talk and signal. And those were called the sea fleas. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all this equipment that he kind of just dreamed up and then built. And um, a lot of this came from financing that he got from his TV specials 
And also, you know, apparently he was very charismatic. So he had like a research committee that would try to raise funds for him. And he would come in with some crazy harebrained scheme, like where he wanted to go or thing he wanted to build. And they were like, no, no, no. And then somehow like throughout the process, they were convinced (laughs) because he was just, he was a great, I guess, fundraiser for himself. Um, He was also becoming more and more of an environmental activist. So he organized a popular campaign against like the French government plan to dump nuclear waste in the ocean. Ooh. It was in the Mediterranean, actually, in 1960. And he faced off with the French president, and they organized, I think, a sit-in on the rail tracks so that they couldn't get the waste to the ocean, and they eventually ended up abandoning that. Um, and then the other thing he did, not just submersibles, but he started building basically sea labs. <laughs> so he started like with, it was called Conshelf. So it was like level one, and then they moved deeper with level two and even deeper with level three. And the people, the, the whole goal was to put them under the ocean and have crew down there for like a week or a series of weeks, because it was more efficient to just put people and leave them down there for longer periods of time than it was to like try to dive them up and down over and over again especially for the deeper levels and so they were they were called oceanauts like astronauts that's so cool (laughs) yeah we don't we don't really do that anymore yeah and he eventually like it started with a one chamber thing and then it turned into like more of a sea village Mm. and it just kept going deeper and deeper and what they found was you know people can live under the sea for long periods of time but there's like physical and and psychological limitations especially because they're deprived of sunlight while they're down there because you know you don't have to go that deep before it's cool they called them aquanauts because it sounds very similar to the the issues of being an astronaut (laughs) exactly and actually they started using this type of system to train astronauts because they're like you're isolated you're in this environment which is physically trying um, and you're with the same guy for weeks. Yeah. It's like, oh, he's so annoying. He's so annoying, that guy. <laughs> Get out so, of my space. A lot of this was cool. So his, his hour-long TV special started in 1966, and he kept writing books throughout the 70s. Um, he kept doing uh, films as well. And I think these were the films that I grew up watching and, like, the ABC special as well. I remember seeing them in French and but they ran in the united states as well like his show ran on abc so if you grew up during the 70s and 80s i think you would have seen it on television and i think a lot of his expeditions were also featured in national geographic so if you had like a library of national geographics growing up you would have come across him he's the guy in the red cap (laughs) Um, so he founded uh this this society called the Cousteau society And he did that to warn the world through science communications, like films, lectures, writings, that the ocean was fragile and had to actually be cared for. We couldn't just leave it to its own devices. We were having an effect on it. And we we had to... nuclear waste there. We can't just dump. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Nuclear waste and all the other stuff in there. And um, the Cousteau Society was a U.S.-based not-for-profit. And then in 1981, he founded the Equipe Cousteau, which is Cousteau team, in France. So it was two different societies, but basically the same mission. Um, and that was all like public membership. So you could be a, a member of the of his team on land, I guess. You can't do it anymore? <laughs> I think you still can. They're oh, still okay. around. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. Um, and then uh, tragedy struck what? in June 1979. His son, Philippe, his eldest son at age 38, was killed in a seaplane crash. Ooh. 
and um, apparently he had been flying during a test flight. He was attempting to land, and they clipped like a sea bank, and and he went under. Um, And then Philippe had had two children, daughter Alexandra and a son named Philippe as well. So they survived him, and they are actually still active in protecting the ocean and environmentalism. Yeah, so a lot of the Cousteau family have are still in that practice i mean his son jean-michel won the legion of honor from france for his work that he's continued since then is, i wonder if cousteau is a pop is a common name because it'd be like well my name is cousteau like what else am i gonna do <laughs> yeah <laughs> you you're <know>? like <laughs> now you're just like it'll look weird if i'm an accountant <laughs> i have to be a diver <laughs> so around this time like in 1980 cousteau decided like he wanted to create a boat he wanted to create another thing, um, a boat that was more energy efficient and had clean energy, and it was wind-powered. Like a sailboat? <laughs> kind of. I think we already had those. Well, we had sailboats, and they weren't very efficient. So what he developed was a wind power system called the turbo sail. And oh, at first, sail. it started out as the, it was called the windmill, <laughs> because it's basically that what it was. was something we <laughs> but it was like a, a cylinder, like smokestack, and it functioned like an airplane wing, wing, like it drew in air and was able to propel. And they had tried doing this system years before, and it never worked out. And Cousteau was like, no, I will make it work. <laughs> and so he got all of his engineers together, and they figured out how to do it. And they actually did a crossing to prove that it worked. They went from Algiers to New York. And it was only at the very end where they hit really high winds, and it kind of destroyed the system. Um, but it was just that the hole wasn't strong enough. So they ended up developing a stronger hole for that. So the 80s into the 90s, Cousteau also got involved in trying to limit, uh, you know, whaling. And he launched a petition to uh, stop mineral exploitation in Antarctica. So he continued on the whole environmental trend and was actually getting involved in public policy issues and all that stuff. So in 1990, his wife dies of cancer she's 71 and one year later he marries this woman named francine and it turns out that he had had an affair with her for a very long time Ew. and had a secret family oh my god yes oh my god Whoa. so <laughs> i did not see this coming he had two children with francine a daughter and a son and they were both obviously born while he was married to simone And he died seven years later in 1997, kind of unexpectedly. And so his estate and, you know, his foundation, the Cousteau Society and the team um, Cousteau kind of fell in dispute among his survivors. Oh, because there was no will? Well, because I think all the, I don't know if there was a will, but all the children started fighting over it. And Francine, his second wife, ended up in charge of his society, the Cousteau Society. So she became, I think, the president of that society and you know was running it with her kids and there was a huge falling out obviously between her and his his son with simone jean-michel right so that son had no idea that that he had half siblings exactly yeah and then all of a sudden that's rough kind of that whole inheritance from his father is taken over by you know this other family this second wife because he's remarried so she's next of kin yeah Yeah. and so jean-michel ended up leaving breaking off from the cousteau society and founded his own society called oceans future society and that was founded in 1999 and it's a nonprofit marine conservation and education organization. Um, and he still runs that. And like I said, like his kids are involved in running it. 
His son, Fabian, is also, you know, into diving and he and into marine education, all of that. And he just got engaged in New York to, to a lady. So congratulations. <laughs> Science French congratulates you. But yeah, the Cousteau, is, the Cousteau family is still very much alive and active. And, you know, they're still winning awards and continuing the ocean conservation work that Jacques Cousteau began. Yeah, that's a really cool tradition to have in your family. It is super cool. I'm jealous. Yeah, and I mean, really, there was no other way. Like, if you start out as a cabin boy when you're 12 for your dad, yeah, what else, what else are you, you going to exactly. do? What else are you going to do? You've been spoiled for life. Yeah. Like, like yeah, what... It's like, yeah, you can't just... You, you can't, can't become a lawyer. People are always no. going to be asking no, what you're doing. No, you can't even be a doctor. Boring. Yeah. Like, if you spend the whole time just spending other people's money, like exploring the seas. Yeah, we would all do that. Like, I think that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, so we don't have to guess or imagine who might portray all of these characters in a movie because the movie is coming out. It was actually just released in France and it's coming to, I think, uh, it's going to Britain early next year. And it's called The Odyssey, and it's all about the Cousteau family. It's based on books that were written, I think, by Jean-Michel and other Cousteaus. And it portrays their whole family, kind of all their issues and their expeditions and everything. And his wife, Simone, is played by Audrey Tattoo. Oh, my God. (laughs) So everyone's going to go see this movie. I'm excited about it. And I think it was, yeah, it was just released in France on October 12th, 2016. Um, But apparently the film doesn't portray the full extent of the family rift. They say that actually is, it's much worse in real life Ah. so that's that's sad i found that really sad yeah that is because (sighs) apparently i mean supposedly simone didn't know about this other woman at all so she died not she died not knowing and i don't know how real that is you know if it's just something you tell yourself or maybe she didn't let on that how she did he knew. have time to have a second family when he was no out on idea. the water all the time simone was the only woman on the boat i'm confused i know i am too i will have to watch the movie yeah but i think he would be what a, what a sailor he was like woman in every port and all that all that <laughs> I stuff know. <laughs> i know and yeah way she... to be a, a stereotype yeah exactly but yeah, so he died in 1997, so he was 87, and uh, all of his work lives on, and I think it would actually have been a lot of fun to have brunch with him. Yeah. We'd have to have brunch on the Calypso, of course. Yeah, we'd have to ask him not to marry us and have an affair with us first. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But yeah, all of his kids would be there. I mean, it would be nice if we could just have him adopt us. Yeah, there we go. And then we could be cabin girls. Cabin, yeah. <laughs> that sounds kind of dirty. I wonder what he would order. He probably wouldn't order any seafood. Like, no, no, uh, what would, what would, like, a seafood thing be you'd have for brunch? Like, sea cucumber. No. Um, <laughs> shrimp pancakes. I mean, sometimes there's, like, a, like, you'll have, like, a salmon something, right? Like, that's true. Probably nothing, nothing with seafood because he'd be such a conservationist. No, no salmon, you know, mm, eggs like benedict for him. salmon. Yeah. No, no shrimp in I his think... omelet. Uh, waffles. <laughs> I think waffles are always a safe bet. That's good. No, actually, he'd probably have crepes. He's French. Let's oh, yeah, it. duh. I'm like, what? yeah. What are, what are we even talking about? <laughs> Obviously. But yeah, I had a lot of fun. It was interesting to learn about. I mean, he was a childhood hero. Like, I grew up watching his stuff and I always admired him. And it was interesting to learn about all of the other stuff, you know, in his family. And 
I hadn't realized as a kid that his kids were also on the on the boat with him. And that's awesome. I like hearing about his personal growth as a conservationist, too, because sometimes we think about the end, someone, you know, in the end of their career and you're just like, you would just assume that they were that way the whole time. Exactly. But he had to realize things for himself, too. So he learned a lot. That's, and I think that's really cool. It's a testament to his ongoing work that really colored our perception of his first film, which was, you know, not great. <laughs> He's probably the first and most popular scientific, science communicator, too. Yeah, he was a huge science communicator. And I think uh, the appeal was he was showing the public things that they had never seen before, that no one had ever seen before, because he was inventing the submersibles that scientists were using to yeah, collect was, you yeah, know, the means samples. To do and, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was really interesting that the first person to develop these tools was also just broadcasting it to the world as it was going on. So yeah, starting in the 50s, all the way to present day, they're still performing expeditions all over the world. You know, he went all over the world. So yeah, it was really cool. But yeah, he didn't he didn't start out as a conservationist. I mean, it's kind of like the whole Teddy Roosevelt thing. Like he's the yeah, reason we have national parks. Yeah, but very similar. He just wanted them so he could shoot stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing he didn't have dynamite. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> So that's it for this episode of Science Brunch. Thank you for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter to keep up with our news. We release episodes the first and third Monday of every month. And uh, we hope you'll join us next time. Music